Welcome. If you're, if you're new to West Hills, uh, this probably feels kind of weird because uh, you, you don't know me, um, but I appreciate you too. We appreciate you. We appreciate you being with us, and, and we'd love to uh, give you a, a token of our appreciation. We've got some coffee mugs at the info bar after the uh, service if you want to stop by there and bring that little new to West Hills card in your bulletin. On your way in, you should have gotten a bulletin with a little new to West Hills card in it, and we would just love to have your, your email address, be able to send you a, a, an email and say thank you and answer any questions you have about the church, get you connected here, get you plugged in and, and find out what it is that you're looking for out of a faith community and whether or not West Hills might be a good, a good fit for you. Um, we pray that it will be. Uh, we're almost halfway now through our fall sermon series entitled Essentials where we're examining the most foundational truths of the Christian faith together. And this morning, we're going to consider essential number five, which is Jesus. Jesus, the Christ, who is, of course, about essential as it gets for us in Christianity. And since I opened the sermon back in week two on God in this way, I thought I would begin this morning by asking you, what comes into your mind when you think about Jesus? We're so blessed to have Brad and Deb Mashburn with us this morning. They get the joy of introducing people, hundreds of the Wolof and Peel people in Senegal to Jesus for the very first time in their lives. Many of them have never even heard his name. Who is this Jesus who you worship? And they get to introduce people. But how would you answer that question if you were asked, who is Jesus? We know how Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights would answer it. He praised dear eight pound, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus in your golden fleece diaper, so cuddly but still omnipotent. Because he says, I like the Christmas Jesus best. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. So who do you envision when you pray? Maybe you picture hippie Anglo-European Jesus with his pale skin and his blue eyes and his flowing curly blonde locks. With his calm voice, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who would never hurt a fly. Maybe you picture patriotic Jesus with an American flag in one hand and a sword in the other ready to enact justice on everyone who kneels for the anthem or mandates masks or vaccines. A few years ago, a group of New Testament scholars and archaeologists teamed up to try and reconstruct a more accurate portrait of Jesus for us in the Western world. Here's what they came up with. A man with short hair, 1 Corinthians 11, short beard. Leviticus 19.27, dark skin, it's just Middle Eastern geography. I'm not sure why he looks surprised, it's the only thing. It's the, it's the one expression I can't imagine Jesus ever wearing on his face. He was omniscient, but in any case, what's important is not how Jesus looked, but who he was at the very deepest level the heart level, his most core identity, who was Jesus? That's what we want to answer this morning. And friends, I hope to encourage you this morning that Jesus, most important person ever for you to know, that you really can know him 
this morning. And you need to know him. John 17, 3 urges us, says, this is eternal life, that you know Jesus Christ. And specifically, we need to know three things about Jesus. Know him in three personal ways. There are lots of wonderful things we can know about Jesus. The New Testament gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're full of rich descriptions of Jesus, ranging from the biographical, that Jesus was a Jew born in the year 4 BC in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph. He was raised in Nazareth. He learned carpentry. Then he went into ministry around the age of 30, and he spent the last three and a half years of his life as an itinerant preacher and a miracle worker, healer, before being arrested on charges of blasphemy and insurrection, was therefore crucified on a Roman cross in the year 29 AD. The Gospels also offer us some vivid character description, as well some personal heart-level details about who Jesus was at his deepest core. Jesus was gentle and lowly when he interacted with the least of these. He was firm and reproachful when he interacted with the self-righteous. And he was both full of mercy and full of justice. Jesus was all of these things and more, but of everything and anything that we need to know about Jesus, there are three things in particular that everyone needs to come to know about who Jesus was and what Jesus did. These are the three things we must believe about him in order to be saved. And we all know John 3.16. Right? Even unbelievers know John 3.16. They see the guy holding up the sign in the football game in the back of the end zone, and they have to go Google it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's good news. That's great news. But it leaves us with a question. Whosoever believes what about Jesus? Believes that he was a real historical person? No, even the most skeptical atheist scholars today believe that Jesus existed, believe that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. These are the three most important defining truths about Jesus that we need to know and personally know, not just in our heads, but in our hearts this morning, and accept by faith in order to be truly saved. By Jesus. So I would invite you to stand with me again as you're able. Getting a leg workout this morning, up and down. I'm going to read for us Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one even right now at the info bar, the double doors here. We'd love to give you a Bible. But I'll read the passage for us, and then I want to invite you to respond. Afterward, those of you who have trusted in Jesus, to publicly proclaim your faith in him this morning by reciting aloud together with us our church's statement of faith about Jesus, article number seven, in response. But first, hear the word of the Lord. Though Christ Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, do you believe this good news about Jesus? Respond. We believe that the eternal Son of God became human in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Being fully God and fully man, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, perfectly obeyed his heavenly Father, lived a sinless life, suffered and died on the cross for our sins, was raised bodily from the dead, and ascended into heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, and from where he will one day return as victorious king to judge the living and the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son Jesus, for the gift that he is to us. Father, we pray, I pray this morning that you would make much of Jesus in your word, that we need so much more than a transfer of, of information, the knowledge about Jesus to fill our heads. We need to know him personally at a heart level and be changed by him. I pray that you would work and move Holy Spirit in spite of my own fallible words and interpretations of your word that you would somehow in spite of me speak through me to your people this morning we need to hear from you we need to see Jesus be changed by him would you do that this morning for our good and for your glory Jesus in your name we pray amen you may be seated again. The first truth that we need to know about Jesus in order to truly know him is to, is to understand that Jesus lived to be our Lord. He lived to be our Lord. If you ask a lot of Christians who Jesus is, what's most important about him, they might immediately respond, Jesus died on a cross for my sins. And that's true, and that's really imperative to know, and we're going to get there. But listen, if all Jesus did was die for our sins, then he could have gone straight from the manger to the cross. He could have gone straight from the golden fleece diapers to the crown of thorns. But there is a reason that Jesus lived for 33 or so years on this earth and walked and interacted with us. A significant reason Jesus lived to be our Lord. Now, what does that mean? Because Lord is not a term, it's not a title that we use very often these days. What does it mean to call Jesus Lord, to confess him as Lord? I think it means two things. So I'm going to give you two sub-points under each of these three primary bullet points this morning. So first of all, to say that Jesus is Lord is to affirm that Jesus was God incarnate. 
Jesus is God incarnate. The word Lord is actually the word used in the Old Testament, Adonai, in place of God's own personal name, Yahweh, because the Jews considered it too holy to even write or speak. And so they would substitute Lord, Adonai, in instead. And those two words, Lord God, appear together almost 1,600 times in the Bible. They're almost interchangeable. And so to call Jesus Lord is to call him God. It is to say that when we look at Jesus, we are looking at God himself. And Jesus affirmed as much to his disciple Philip in John chapter 14. He's, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Philip, have I been with you for so long now and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because Jesus is God. This is how the New Testament unequivocally over and over again identifies Jesus. I, 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 I can't understand, I don't understand how heretical sects that have splintered off from historic Orthodox Christianity like Jehovah's Witnesses or, or Latter-day Saints, Mormons, how they can claim to read the same New Testament we do as inspired scripture and, and still miss this. It's so sad. I've tried to, to even understand. I had a volleyball friend uh, who was Jehovah's Witness. I had a, a student who I was a dorm parent for at Culver who was, who was Mormon, and I would have conversations with, and I would ask them, explain to me, how do you interpret passages like John 10, verse 30, where Jesus claims, I and the Father are one? I mean, the Jewish leaders all around Jesus, they got it. They caught his drift because three verses later they picked up rocks and they said, we're going to stone you for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. How do you read a passage like John 1? The word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus and not, and not get that Jesus was God. Titus 2.13, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Or 2 Peter 1, 1, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or Hebrews 1, verse 8, of the Son, Jesus, God, the Father says, your throne, O God, is forever. So God the Father is calling Jesus his Son, O God. Or Colossians 2, 9, in Jesus the whole fullness of deity, of Godness, dwells bodily. Passage after passage, pointing out the fact that Jesus is, was and is God. Now, why is that important? You ready? I've got two sub-sub points <laughs> for you underneath that. So we're just digging even deeper. If you're taking good notes, your outline should look like this now. This is sub-sub <laughs> point number one. Because Jesus is God, that means two things. Number one means he calls us to obedience. If Jesus was truly God incarnate, he calls us to obedience. The Greek word for, for Lord, kurios, literally means master. Servants, doulos, are called to obey their kurios, their master, unreservedly, without question. While Jesus was on earth, he called people to follow them. They instantly dropped their nets and fell in line. Why? Because when God himself says jump, you and I ought to respond how high, right? 
When God himself takes on human flesh and says, hey, this is what y'all are supposed to be living like. I love you. I want the very best for you out of life, life to the fullest. But you seem to have such a hard time actually doing it, actually living the way I created you to, the right way. And so God himself came down from heaven, stepped off his throne to live as a human, in part to show us how to be fully human. Jesus was fully God and fully human. You and I are neither. Or certainly not God. And to the extent that as humans we've been created in God's image to glorify him and we consistently fail to do so, we're content so often to live as less than fully human as well. But Jesus came in part to show us how. How to live life to the fullest. And he calls us then to obey him. To live like he did. John 14, 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then you're truly my followers. 1 John 2, verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know Jesus if we keep his commandments. So as God, Jesus calls us to obey him. And that also means secondly, so now sub-sub point number two, as God, he calls us to obedience and he convicts us of sin. As much as we look at Jesus and we say, that's how I want to live, that's how God made me to live, we ought to equally look at him and realize, but that's not how I live. That's not, I am not Jesus. Because Jesus is God, and so he holds up a mirror for you and me up to our lives. He shines light on our sin, the various ways in which we each fail to, to, to give God the glory he fully deserves and falls short of that calling. And so Jesus points us then to our desperate need of a Savior. It is the Spirit of Jesus, John 16, 8, who convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is why Jesus declares in Luke 5, 32, that I came to call sinners to repentance. Because Jesus' godly perfection convicts us of our own sinful brokenness that's a big part of the reason why we hung him on a cross right this darkness hates the light it exposes the darkness but sub point number two now to pronounce jesus as lord is also to profess that as god jesus fulfilled all righteousness jesus living to be our lord means he showed us how to be God in flesh, and he also fulfilled as God all righteousness for us. That's what John the Baptist said of him when he baptized him. What does that mean, though? Okay, three more sub-sub points. First, Jesus fulfilled God's precepts, his law. We talked last week about God's plan to redeem humanity, how God called and consecrated a people unto himself to be a blessing to all nations. And how did God do that specifically in the Old Testament? It was by giving his people Israel his commandments, his law, that they were called to follow and thereby reflect God's glory and his character to the nations, to be his light to the world. But Israel consistently failed to keep the law, to follow God's commandments, to be that light for the nations. And yet God had declared in his word that his word was eternal. His word, you know, the grass withers, flowers fade, the word of the Lord endures forever. 
His law is binding. Jesus reiterated as much in Matthew 5. He said, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not one dot will pass away from the law. That leaves sinners like you and me in a lot of trouble unless Jesus fulfills the law for us. And that's exactly what he claimed he did. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There's a now famous, infamous, in our circles, clip of Pastor Stephen Furtick where he tells this hypothetical story about your child getting really, really hurt, and you're rushing him to the emergency room, ignoring all the speed limit signs along the way because a good parent will break the law for the sake of love. And so Furtick concludes that Jesus broke the law for you. But he's 180 degrees wrong. Jesus didn't break the law for you. Actually, Jesus fulfilled the law for you. He kept the law for you out of love. Jesus did what you and I should do, but couldn't do, weakened by sin. We failed to do, and Jesus kept the law perfectly. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin. And we'll see in a minute why that's so important, that Jesus kept the law. But secondly, Jesus not only fulfilled God's precepts, he also fulfilled God's prophecies. There are at least 351 Old Testament prophecies that about the coming Messiah that were uniquely fulfilled in the person of Jesus, including the prophecy that he would be God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah chapter 9. Lastly, Jesus fulfilled God's plan. God called and consecrated a people in order to bless all peoples through them. He purifies a people for his own possession and for his own redemptive purposes. Jesus accomplished this in a way that the Old Testament law was unable to. And we see how in point number two. Main point number two, Jesus lived to be our Lord and he died to be our Savior. He died to be your Savior. To say that Jesus died to be our Savior is to affirm two massively crucial things, truths about Jesus, specifically his death. First, that in his death on the cross, Jesus removed our sin. He removed all our sin. In the Old Testament, God not only gave his people Israel his law, to keep, but in his mercy, because God knew that they would fall short and consistently fail to keep it, he also gave them the institution of sacrifice as a means of atoning for, of covering over their sin. Basically, God deserves our entire lives, all our heart, mind, soul, strength, nothing less, lived in complete surrender and service to him. That's what God deserves and demands. But we, you and I, give him far less than that on a daily basis. The Bible calls this sin. The gap between what we owe God and what we actually give him. And the Bible says that the penalty for that gap, that, that sin against a perfect, holy God, is death. But that in his mercy, 
God allowed, in the Old Testament, the Israelites to pay off that debt, that gap, that life debt with the blood of an animal instead because, as Leviticus 17.11 says, our life is in our blood. And so the book of Leviticus lays out this entire system, this exchange rate, if you will, for just how much blood it requires to atone for which sins. The bigger the sin, the more substantial the sacrifice required. That's how God allows people back into his presence by covering their sin in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament also anticipated an end to the sacrificial system. Because the prophet Isaiah, in his famous chapter 53, he predicted a coming Messiah who would himself serve as Israel's final once and for all time sacrifice. One who would bear our griefs, carry our sorrows, be smitten by God and afflicted, be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him will be the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we will be healed. Because, as Isaiah says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, instead of a priest transferring our sins onto a sheep or a ram or a bull or a goat for atonement, for covering over our sin, one day God himself would lay all of our sin on his own suffering servant who would actually remove our sin. Isaiah portrays him as the Lamb of God who would be led to the slaughter, whose soul will make an offering for guilt. He will make many be accounted as righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities, making intercession, mediation for the transgressors. Friends, when Jesus Christ came seven centuries later, the angel instructed his adopted father, Joseph, that you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, which means God saves, for he will save his people from their sins. When Jesus started his public ministry, 30 years later, John the Baptist rightly identified him as the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Jesus was Israel's long-awaited Messiah, Isaiah's sin-bearing Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how the book of Hebrews describes him as well. Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin, to remove sin for good by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 10 says it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. All they could do was cover over sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God because he meant it when he said, it is finished, payment made in full, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 1 John 2, 2 calls Jesus the propitiation for our sins. A propitiation is a sacrifice that appeases God's wrath. We don't like to think about God as being wrathful, as being angry. 
But he is. Specifically, God hates sin. Just like I, as even a, not a great father, I hate anything that threatens my children. God hates sin. Colossians 3, 6 says, on account of sin, the wrath of God is coming. God hates what sin is. First and foremost, it's an offense against him, Romans 8, 8. God hates what sin does to us because he loves us as his children, Colossians 3, 1 through 5. And God hates what sin does to our relationship with our heavenly father, Isaiah 59, 2 says, behold, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Sin separates broken, fallen people from a holy, perfect, otherwise unapproachable God. And so God had to make a way to punish sin, to pour out his righteous wrath against sin, lest God be found unjust, while also somehow sparing us the sinners committing all the sin. And he did it, 1 John 3, 5, by sending Jesus as a sacrifice in order to take away our sins. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 declares, you were ransomed from your futile ways, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took our sin out of us onto him, his body, that we might die to sin. By his wounds, you have now been healed. Colossians 2.13 and 14 proclaims that in Christ, God has now forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt, that life debt, that stood against us. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. Passage after passage after passage on almost every page of the New Testament glorifying, glorying in the truth that, that Jesus, the precious Lamb of God, has removed all our sin. Praise God. Friends, the, the good news gets even better than that. Because not only did Jesus remove all our sin and guilt on the cross, he doesn't leave us empty. He actually gave us his own righteousness. Remember, we said that Jesus fulfilled the law for you. Here's why that's so important, because in that same passage, Matthew 5, where Jesus said that not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away, he went on to say that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you don't know Jesus this morning, that might be the most terrifying verse in the entire Bible. That unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. The scribes and the Pharisees were professional law keepers. That's like all they did all day long. They weren't perfect. Jesus is going to make that clear. But everyone thought of them as about as close as you could get to keeping the law. 
not Jesus. He was unimpressed. Jesus said, listen, heaven isn't for good people, it's for perfect people. That's why Jesus commanded us a few verses later, Matthew 5, 48, he said, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the bar. That's the standard. Let me ask you this morning, West Hills, raise your hand if you're perfect. Okay, now raise your hand if you want to go to heaven one day. That's a problem. <laughs> Do you see the problem? What is God's solution? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is God. He fulfilled all the righteousness of God for us. And on the cross, in his substitutionary death in our place, Jesus not only took our sin, our unrighteousness on himself and removed our sin, paid the penalty that it deserves, that it owes us death, but he simultaneously transferred into us, we say he imputed or he credited to us his own righteousness such that when God the Father now looks at you, he no longer sees you as the dirty sinner that you are, he sees you as dressed in all the righteousness of his son Jesus. That's the gospel. That 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, be our intercessor, our sacrificial mediator. Romans 3, 21 and 22, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who would believe. In other words, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets on the cross. He manifested, he gave experientially his righteousness to us to everyone who would simply trust in him by faith and so the apostle paul exclaims in philippians 3 9 says i want to be found in christ not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law i'm not depending on my when i stand before the lord one day at heaven's gates and he asks why should i let you into heaven remember Hint, hint, it's for perfect people. Paul says, I'm not going to answer anything. There's not going to be any first-person pronouns in my response because it's nothing about me, nothing in me, not a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's Christ's righteousness credited to me. Because Romans 4, 5 to the one who believes in Jesus, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so friends, I ask you this morning, have you believed, have you trusted in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior so that you might be justified, you might be declared righteous simply by faith in Him? This is God's plan of salvation for you, for everyone who would believe. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus 
and you will be saved this morning. Now, that is all incredibly good news. And sometimes we get carried away and we're tempted to end the sermon right there. But believe it or not, the good news gets even better than that. Because not only did Jesus live to be our Lord, incarnating God for us, fulfilling God's righteous demands of us, and not only did God die, Jesus die to be our Savior, removing all our sin and shame and granting us his own righteous good standing before God the Father instead. But number three, and on the third day, Jesus rose to be our King. He rose to be your King. And his resurrection does two monumentally significant things. Quickly in closing. First, Jesus' resurrection confirms his power over death. If Jesus claimed to have power over sin and death, if he predicted that he would himself die in order to put death to death once and for all and make that final ultimate payment for our sins, then Jesus' resurrection is like the receipt, proving that his check has cleared God the Father. Payment made in full for our sin. Forgiveness purchased once and for all. Acts 2, 24 declares that God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Death could not hold him. The veil tore before him. He silenced the boast of sin and grave. Romans 6, 9, since Christ was raised from the dead, death no longer has mastery over him. Hebrews 2.14, through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He's totally powerless now. 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus. And that's The second thing, that Jesus' resurrection as our king does is it gives us new life in him as well. Confirms his power over death and it gives us that same resurrection power, new life. Romans 6, 4 through 8, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you can receive Jesus' very own resurrection power, not only over death and the life to come, but over the very power of sin in this life as well? That if you crucify your old self, die to yourself in order to live for Christ and walk in the newness of life that he now offers you, you can have Jesus' new life, eternal life, in you today. It starts now. Not just the penalty of sin, 
But the power of sin is broken because of Jesus' resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with us, uh, with him, those who have fallen asleep. It's a euphemism for death. Death is no longer a period at the end of the sentence. It's a comma. Right before life everlasting. Because John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. Do you want to live forever? You already told me you want to go to heaven. I think every single hand was raised. Do you want to live forever? You don't have to fear death this morning if you know the one who conquered it and now offers you eternal life. His name is Jesus. That's who he is, and that's what he's done for you. He lived to be your Lord. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he stepped off his throne, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And he died to be your Savior, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But the story didn't end there. He rose to be your king. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, this is Jesus. This is who he is and what he's done for you. Praise God for his gift of his son, Jesus.